So let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do give you praise this morning, and we rejoice at the opportunity to come together as the body of Christ. I pray that you would use your word to instruct us and to direct our thinking to be more godly. Lord, that we would uh, understand the words that Ezekiel wrote so long ago, that they would uh, impact our lives, Lord, that we would think rightly about this world and where it's headed, all the plans that you have made from before the creation of the earth, Lord, that we, it might comfort us, it might help us to understand some of the things that go on in this world, Lord, that we might trust you more. So thank you for your word and uh, what it provides for our lives, it's instruction for our living. We give you praise this morning. Amen. So this is week number 18 in our study of eschatology, and we're over in Ezekiel. Last week we went through the entire chapter of chapter 35, and you remember that was a prophecy um, really uh, against Mount Seir, a prophecy of judgment against Mount Seir. Uh, we looked into the uh, book of Genesis to see that Mount Seir really represents the nation of Edom, which is the nation that came from uh, Jacob's oldest son, Esau, that uh, he had twins, Jacob and Esau, the younger one being Jacob, became renamed, uh, became the nation of Israel. And the nation of Edom came from Esau. And the whole issue about Edom and Esau is that it was always and it's well chronicled in scripture, always opposed to Israel, always um, um, had animosity and envy and jealousy. Um, they would do anything they could to destroy Israel. Uh, and even today that still goes on, not so much through the nation of Edom, because Edom uh, disappeared. No one can trace their ancestry back to Edom. They got um, consumed, really, by the Arabs. And so you don't, no one speaks of being from Edom or their ancestry being from Edom. Um, but in this chapter, chapter 35, God gives many reasons why he's going to make Edom a desolation. And um, it all has to do with their enmity uh, toward Israel. Uh, in contrast today, we're going to see in chapter 36 that God talks about the blessings that are going to be on Israel. The question we had last week is, um, where does chapter 35 happen in history? Has it already happened or is it something yet future? We know that God, back in Ezekiel 25, verses 12 through 14, said that Edom would be made desolate by the hands of Israel. So it was unique that Israel was the one who was going to make it desolate. It's unique in the fact that it's the only um, nation that makes it into the last 15 chapters of Ezekiel. Only Edom is spoken of. None of the other nations that have been destroyed uh, throughout history are spoken of there. Um, so there's something unique about Edom. And 
my take on it, my belief is that it is in, you remember we said that chapter 34 to the end of Ezekiel, I believe is the millennial kingdom. There are many things that are detailed in that, which we'll look at, that say this is a, in no time that's happened in history. And it's something that happens at the very end when Jesus Christ returns again for the millennial reign. And so because it's in those last 15 chapters, I believe this prophecy against Mount Seir, against the nation of Edom, happens in the millennial kingdom. Um, the, the strongest verse in the chapter that says that is verse 14 that says, Thus says the Lord, as the earth rejoices, you will be made desolate. Speaking of Edom, so when is the time when the whole world rejoices? Um, I don't think we could point to one in the past. Um, nowhere in history did the whole world rejoice. And so I believe that's the millennial kingdom, when the earth will be reigned with, by righteousness, where Jesus Christ will establish his millennial kingdom, where those who reign over all the nations will be righteous, um, that evil will be put down very quickly. Um, so the whole world rejoices because it's a much better place. And to go along with that, the physical nature of the world has somewhat been changed not completely back to the Garden of Eden, but somewhat back towards it so that lions and lambs lay down together, that the cobra won't bite a child, and all these things that are spoken of over in Isaiah um, will be true. And so the whole world will be rejoicing it, um, because of the righteous reign of Jesus Christ. So because Edom is spoken of as being desolate when the whole world rejoices. I believe that's during the millennial kingdom. And Isn't it fascinating to, and I know there are many dear brothers and sisters that I interact with, some of them who hold deeply to the millennial view. Right, that there is no millennial kingdom. Yeah, it's, it, it, I mean, you know, he's talking about hermeneutics. You have a hermeneutic, whether you um, recognize it or not. You do. You, you see the scriptures through some set of lenses, and you make decisions about what you think it, it means, and that is your hermeneutic. That's the way that you interpret scripture. Um, so you do hold a hermeneutic. It may not be consistent uh, because you don't work at it being consistent, but you have a hermeneutic. Um, everybody does. And most people hold to the hermeneutic of what someone taught them as opposed to searching it out for themselves. And that's one of the reasons I like to study the scripture and uh, often encourage you is you have to do some digging. 
You have to figure some things out for yourself and you shouldn't just believe everything that I say. I'm good with that. If you don't agree with everything that I'm saying, that's perfectly fine with me. I encourage that um, because we all need to be Berean. We all need to be studying the scriptures and not just believing everything that we were taught. I can, I can tell you I was taught a lot of things growing up in church that I've had to discard and throw away because I've recognized now well-intentioned people who loved me and who cared about me taught me wrongly. And they didn't mean to. It's just what they had been taught by people who didn't understand and that's what they passed on to me. And I've had to discard a lot of that. Some of it was good, most of it was bad. And, uh, and so the scriptures, I mean, God put the Holy Spirit within every believer so that you might be able to understand what's written in the scriptures. And he rewards diligence and persistence and effort. And so um, that's a soapbox that I'm on, right? But uh, we need to study the scripture for ourselves. And... Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, and I, I mean, I, I know what the amillennial view is. I could teach it to you. I could give the tenets of it. I could support it in the way that they support it, but I can't support it with what I believe the scripture actually says. The problem with that is the Reformed theology was a reformation of the Catholic theology. Right. And so most um, Reformed people today are really Reformed Catholics. Well, yeah, the Reformation clearly came out of the Catholic Church, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, you look at the Reformers, they were originally Catholic, and they re... This was justification by faith. That was what they had, I mean, they had the battle with that basic then, so giving the eschatology was impossible. Right, and, and, and they didn't try to go through um, all of the theology of eschatology and all. They didn't have time to get there. Um, and so some of the thoughts that we have, certainly the doctrines of grace and all, um, didn't rise. Well, I mean, Calvin clearly stated what he believed, but um, that was not their focus. That was not what they were all about. So um, we go a little further. We have the opportunity to today. Um, and, you know, um, I, I hold to the doctrines of grace not because somebody taught them to me. Um, the Holy Spirit taught me the doctrines of grace out of the book of Colossians. And I can remember it very, very clearly when it happened and I didn't know what to do with it. And it took a few years to figure that out. And then it took a few more years for me to understand that what I believe were the doctrines of grace. That all didn't just happen, but I know the truth rose out of the scriptures as I studied them and taught them. That's why I encourage you to study the scriptures because the spirit will use them to uh, give you the truth in such a way that you don't hold to it because someone taught it to you. And there's a huge difference in being taught by the scripture and being taught by the spirit as opposed to being taught in a classroom. And so the only way to get that is to study the scriptures. So we go into chapter 36 today.
And in 30, I, I think 36 is crucial in your understanding of eschatology. Because in chapter 36, God gives his motives for what is happening in eschatology. Very rarely does he do that. Um, we, we know the actions. Um, we know the results. But not often does God give us the motives that he holds. And so in chapter 36, he reveals his motives. And so it's very instructive for us to go through this and to understand, because the more you understand about what God says about his motives in chapter 36, the more you understand the grand plan of God that was laid before the foundations of the earth. And so we're going to kind of walk through this. As I said, this is um, the opposite of the curses or the judgment of Mount Seir. This is the blessings of the mountain of Israel. And God will literally, in the first 20 verses or so, speak to the land, the physical land. And then he'll turn his attention and talk to the inhabitants of the land. But you'll see it as we go through this. And I, I just want to walk through it quickly, verse by verse, that God is talking to the physical land and not to the people of the land. And so let's just begin this um, the first three verses, you can see that he begins to speak to the physical land. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountain of, mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has spoken against you, aha, and the everlasting heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, for good reason they have made you desolate and crushed you from every side that you would become a possession of the rest of the nations and you have been taken up in the talk and the whispering of the people. Okay, so God starts where they're at right now at this time in history. They've been made desolate. The land has been crushed. There's nobody there. Israel has been cast out of the land, and so that's where God starts this prophecy, is at the point where they're at in history, and they have been destroyed. Um, they're, the only Israelites that are left are in captivity in Babylon, and the land is absolutely desolate, and God, you notice he says, for good reason, and we've read about that for the first 33 chapters of Ezekiel that the good reason was because of the idolatry and the iniquity of the people of Israel. And so God says, for good reason, this land has been made desolate like it is today when Ezekiel is, is speaking these words. Um, so that's where God starts. And then he says, he changes, the, the tone changes in verse 4, where God says, therefore, O mountains of Israel, Hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills, to the ravines and the valleys, to the desolate wastes and the forsaken cities which have become a prey and a derision to the rest of the nations which are round about. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, surely in the fire of my jealousy I've spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom 
who appropriated my land for themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and with scorn of soul to drive it out for a prey. So this is what literally happened to Israel, right? The Babylonians drove them out. The, as they came out, the uh, Edomites drove them back into the Neb- um, Babylonian forces so they could all be slaughtered in the land. And so God speaks of what had happened. But there's several things that you'll notice here. I think he's talking to the literal land and the cities that he's saying, you've been made desolate. He's not talking to any people because there are no people there. And so he's talking to the literal land and the cities. But notice that in verse 4, I think it's in verse 4. Notice in verse 5 that God says, my jealousy and my land. So he calls Israel his land, and that he's jealous for it because other people say they're going to take it from him. Now, that's not going to happen, right? I mean, I mean, they may be there for a while, but ultimately they're not going to be there. So the, nation, the land of Israel, the physical land itself that God has mentioned over and over and over as we've gone through these prophecies all the way back in Joshua, all the way back in... Um, Genesis, when we were there, in Deuteronomy, um, then eventually in Ezekiel, God himself bringing up the land. Not the people mentioning it, but God bringing it up. He does so here again. When the land's been made desolate, he says, this is my land, and I'm jealous for it. So there's something very special about the, the hills of Israel Because no other place that I know of in Scripture does God call a specific geographical land his land. Now, we know the whole earth is his because he created it, spoke it into existence. That's well known. That's well understood. But here, he names a geographic area and says, that's my land. So there is something very unique about the land of Israel. Okay, because otherwise God wouldn't be mentioning these things. Oh, yeah. That we'll begin to see that in chapter 36 and see it more later that he begins to speak of what this land changes into. Just think how beautiful that's going to be. Oh, and it's not the Garden of Eden, but it looks like the Garden of Eden. They compare it to, the scripture compares it to the Garden of Eden. So, um, and one other thing I want you to notice here, notice that God again singles out Edom. Out of all the nations that surround Israel, He singles out Edom again in this verse when he he says uh, in verse 5, and against all Edom. And then before that, the rest of the nations and against Edom. There's something very unique 
about God's judgment on the land of Edom. And we know what that is from chapter 35. And so here again in 36, he speaks specifically of that. And like I said, all through history, it's well chronicled in the scriptures that Edom was opposed to Israel. Now today, the land of Edom is partly in Syria, partly in Jordan. Certainly no friends of Israel. Um, so that's the, what, we, what the scriptures call Edom, is today the western side of Syria and Jordan, right up against Israel. And so that's where Mount Seir is, that's where the mountain ranges are, um, and that's who he prophesied against in the previous chapter. Now, in verse 8, well, let me see, we didn't go through 5 through 7. Start in 5, 7. Therefore, yeah, we did, didn't we? Didn't I read that? Yeah. Um, then verse 6. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains and to the hills, to the ravines and the valley, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my wrath, because you have endured the insult of nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have sworn that surely the nations which are around you will themselves endure their insults. But you, O mountains of Israel, you will put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you will be cultivated and sown. I will multiply men on you, all the house of Israel, all of it. And the cities will be inhabited, and the waste places will be rebuilt. I will multiply on you man and beast, and they will increase and be fruitful, and I'll cause you to be inhabited as you were formerly and will treat you better than at the first. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. So God is literally speaking to the land. He's speaking to the trees of the land, saying you're going to put forth your branches and put forth your fruit. The, the soil is going to be cultivated and then sown. So it'll grow crops. And so God is literally talking to the land. He says that you were inhabited. That could only be the land or the cities that he's talking to. And he said, I'll multiply men in, on you. So he's literally talking to the land, which he says is his land. This is my land. I'm jealous for it, and I'm going to do these things for Israel. Now, if you go there today, it is not like this. It's arid. It's rocky. It's, it does grow some crops, but it doesn't grow crops like they're going to be described here. Or even like the crops that were grown that you read about when Christ walked the earth. It's not like that today. I mean, you remember the grain fields that were plentiful that um, the scriptures speak of? You don't see those today. That's not the way it is. It's arid today. And so it's going to be changed in a very significant way, better than it was at the first, God says. So he's talking to the literal land 
of Israel. This is one of the reasons why I believe that the land that God's mentioned over and over and over is significant in the plan of God. Otherwise, why would he be talking to it if it had no significant place for him? Why would he call it my land if it wasn't significant to God? Right. It is the promise of what? Of land. land flowing with everything you can ever want and need. Right? That, that's at the very floor of the promise. Yeah, and, and fast forward with me over to verse 28. And what would Ezekiel think about this? And what were the people who were listening to Ezekiel think about it? You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. The land that I gave to your forefathers. Who was that? That's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the land that God is talking about. The land that I marked out for you that they never possessed all of it. We saw that clearly in Joshua. Joshua on his deathbed says you've got to keep persisting and little by little, God will give you the land, and we know they didn't do that. And then we go into the, um, into the, the judge period that lasted for 300 years, where you have judges and there's chaos in the nation of Israel. And so this land, I have to believe, is specific. And the land that I gave to your forefathers... If you're an Israelite, what do you think that means? If you're Ezekiel, what do you think that means? It, it doesn't mean some, something that is an allegory for a paradise at some other place. It means the land that God gave to your forefathers. Especially with where, where they were relative to the history of Israel. Oh, absolutely. You see that that light in the distance from the darkness is always so much brighter, and part of that light God's given them right here is the And this is why chapter 36 starts with the desolate land of Israel, because that's what he's talking about. Um, you have to read something else to understand this any other way. Um, you've you, you've got to be, I don't know what you reach for, but he says the land of your forefathers, he's speaking to the literal land itself and saying, I'm going to put people on you, and I'm going to cultivate you, and, I, and your trees are going to grow fruit. I mean, he's talking to the land. David, can you take away on a practical application level? God the Father gave Israel to the Son. He gave the church to the Son. He, and the Son clearly is showing his stewardship over what the Father has given him, all the way out to this passage is what it's well, doesn't it stir, shouldn't it stir in all of us that we are entrusted by God with so much that belongs to him, and there should be a strong sense of stewardship that the believer has because of the reverence we have for its creator. But, and in a couple of verses, God's going to give his motive for why he's going to do this to the land. 
He hadn't told us that yet, right? All, we, all we've seen is this is what is going to happen. But the, the, the real crux is why? Why is God going to do this? And he's going to tell us why in just a couple of verses. And he gives his motive for doing this. And by the way, it's the motive for the whole plan of God. It's the reason that he initially called Abraham out of the land of Ur and sent him to this land. It's the reason that he said to David, your throne will be established forever. It's all the same reason. It's, all the, it's the motive behind the entire plan of God. It's given literally in this chapter. So we've got to get to it, right? And this morning, we're just going to get to it and say it, and then we're going to come back to it next week. All right, so we've we got to keep going. So, I mean, this, this is a startling chapter to me. So we keep going, and um, in, in 13 through 15, God um, says that the land will no longer devour Israel. It will no longer devour um, their children. Let me just read through it real quick. Thus says the Lord God, because you, they say to you, you are a devourer of men and you have bereaved your nation of children, therefore you will no longer devour men and no longer bereave your nation of children, declares the Lord God, I will not let you hear insults from the nations anymore, nor will you bear disgrace from the peoples any longer, nor will you, nor will you cause your nation to stumble any longer, declares the Lord God. So he's talking to the land and saying that you're, you're no longer going to cause the people to stumble. You're, you're no longer going to devour them. And then he changes. And in, in verse 16 through about 20, God recounts why Israel was judged because, because it leads into his motive. Look at 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land because they had defiled it with their idols. Also I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. So when God dispersed the Israelites throughout all the nations, and you can look at it today, where are the Israelites at? There's some in Russia, there's some in Europe, there's a host in, in the United States, and there's about six million in Israel now, and they're increasing. Back in 1945, there were two million of them. Now they're up to six million. But there's still more than that scattered throughout the nations. And so are they currently in progress of what God said? I don't think so. I think God's going to gather them together, not that they're going to go there just of their own initiative. 
But anyway, that's yeah, in the whole world, right? And how many have been destroyed through even recent history? So God, God recounts why He judged them so severely, and they have been scattered, and they are still scattered. They haven't been gathered, even when. Uh, Zerubbabel went back from Babylon to, um, to Israel and later Nehemiah, they didn't stay there. Zerubbabel stayed. Nehemiah didn't. He went back to Babylon. And so not everybody came from Babylon back to Israel. Many stayed in, um, in Babylon, which is why we think, you know, the, the three wise men coming from the east how did they know about Jesus Christ? Because they lived with the Israelis who stayed in Babylon. That's how they knew about them. And they heard Ezekiel prophesy, and they heard other the minor prophets after Ezekiel prophesy. So that's how they knew. Got a question. Yeah. Now you say there are 15 million Jews in the world. That's the best estimate. Oh, absolutely. He asked me about the ten northern tribes. But God does. God does. Yeah, uh, it's true. Well, and, and today, a Jew cannot tell you, some can, but only a few. The Levites can tell you that they're from the tribe of Levi. Nobody else knows what tribe they're from. But that doesn't mean that there won't be some more discoveries that people will be able to trust trace their ancestry back to the tribes. Um, you know, I mean, we keep discovering stuff, and we haven't found the books of genealogy, but we may. And so God's able to do whatever he wants to, and he can do it through natural ways or supernatural ways. And I don't know what he's going to do, but I think the, the Israelis will know which tribe they're from, because as we get to later in this book, he will talk about the tribes and the lands that they possess. By tribe. So they have to know in the end. Okay, let me get, to, get through this. Um, so God recounts why he judged Israel. And because God judged Israel and they were dispersed, his name was and is profaned among the nations. Because basically what people say is that Israel is no more, and it's because God couldn't keep them. And he's, he's saying, that's not true. But they profane the name of God by saying that. That God was not able, and he was not faithful, as he said he would be, to Israel. Okay? That's what it means when it says that he... These are the people the Lord have come out of his land, so we profane the name of God. We say he's not able to do what he promised. So God begins to speak about his motive in verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not... For your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, 
but for my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you went. So here's God's motive. You're not going to profane my name. You are going to give me glory and honor that is due me. That's the whole reason for the creation. That's the whole reason for the plan of God is that he might be given his due glory and honored and praised by the land. Now we'll see that more in detail as he acts here and what his actions are. But notice he says, I'm going to act. And it is something that he does for and to the people of Israel. But he says, I'm not doing this to make it better for you. I'm doing it that my holy name might not be profane. That's God's plan. That's his motive throughout everything that has happened in history. That's why he originally chose Abraham, was that he might show the world who God was. That's why he said to, to David, your throne is going to be established forever so that Jesus Christ might rule on that throne and that all the nations would parade before him and give him honor. Even if they don't like him, even if they don't like him ruling over them, they're still going to parade before him and give him his due honor because that's what you do to the king of the earth. And so this is God's motive, and we'll look at it more in detail. And his actions come out of that motive. What he does for Israel in these next few verses is startling. This is New Testament salvation in spades given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Read it for yourself. This is New Testament salvation. And, and we'll go through that and we'll look at some passages in both places and show that this is what God does for Israel in the final days, in the millennial kingdom. And he does it not so that it'll be better for them. It is better for them, but that's not his motive. His motive is that he might be given his due praise. That's always God's motive is for him to get glory and honor because he's the only one who deserves glory and honor. So if you begin to think about your eschatology and begin to think about your belief about the creation all the way through the final days and view that from the motive that God states here and see if it doesn't change the way you think about some things. Because we're so ego-focused that we think all of this is for our better and our good. And it is. But that's not the motive behind it. That's not why God saves people. It is better for them, but that is not his motive. It's hard to find that kind of ego in God. It is. Also. <laughs> well, and, and realize, God can say, you will praise me and not be egotistical because he is perfectly holy and just. He's worthy of that praise. We're not. And so he can, without being egotistical, say, you will give me praise. You will honor and adore me because he rightly deserves it. And we can't get into that mindset because we don't and we're not. 
But he is. Yeah. Right. That's been the message the whole time to the nation of Israel is I'm accusing you that you might praise me and you might be a distinct nation among all the nations, that they might see a difference in you and know that it's because of me. That's, the Westminster Confession says that the main, no, the only, the chief purpose of man. It is. That's why he created everything. Absolutely. And if you don't give him glory and oppose him, you'll be destroyed. And that's from the hands of reformers. It is. Right. Yeah, they're meant. So we'll come back here next week. This is an amazing chapter. This lays it out clearer than any other chapter I know in Scripture. And it's Old Testament. <laughs> Thanks for your time.